Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank, your host. We are celebrating Pride this week. First up, talking to James Kim. He's going to share how the language barrier between him and his mother really complicated his coming out process, but it ultimately inspired his fictional podcast, Moonface, which is really incredible. Then author Kristen Arnett is going to explain why she specifically likes to be referred to as a queer writer and also why 7-Eleven is her happy place. Plus, we're going to talk to Patrick Haggerty, the lead singer of Lavender Country. They were, by our accounting, maybe the first openly gay country band they formed in the early 1970s. And it took them 46 years to release their second album, which they've recently done. Happy Pride! We are so excited to be celebrating it with you, which all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey there, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. I know that you have been touring the country, putting on this Elvis performance. I want to hear about it <laughs> later in the show. But first up, we've got to play a little station location identification examination. Uh, okay. Maybe it's to a city that I've been on tour to. Possibly. This is where I tell you about a place in the world where Livewire is on the radio. you got to guess where I'm talking about. And because we are celebrating Pride this week that is relevant to these clues. This city has had an active gay nightlife scene since the 1930s. And in 1972, this city hosted the Democratic National Convention, which for the first time featured a public speech on gay rights, which was given by the activist Jim Foster. Uh, well, as anyone who has ever crammed mercilessly for Jeopardy knows, the 1972 <laughs> Democratic National Convention was held in Miami, Florida. <laughs> you are exactly George right. George McGovern your, got the nomination. <laughs> your Jeopardy appearance once again helping you play station location identification. That's right. I'm talking about Miami, Florida, where we are on WLRN. My old stomps of Miami, Florida. So shout out to everyone listening down on WLRN. All right, should we get to the show? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's... This week, podcaster James Kim. You know, got to the point where I needed to come out to my mom. And I didn't know how to do it because I didn't know the words to say I'm gay in Korean. And writer Kristen Arnett. 
But another thing I'm interested in too is writing like life from a queer perspective. With music from Lavender Country. It was idiocy if you think you could get anywhere in 1973 singing Marxist gay country, okay? <laughs> I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Lou Burbank. Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Livewire from all over the country, including WLRN in Miami. We are celebrating Pride on the show this week. Of course, we asked the Livewire listeners a question. We asked, what unsung or undersung hero from queer history would you like to shout out? And we're going to hear those responses coming up in just a few minutes. First, though, Elena. I keep seeing pictures of you on Instagram dressed (laughs) as Elvis on stage somewhere in front of a bunch of people. What is going on exactly? Uh, Well, I've signed on for the spring tour of Pop-Up Magazine, which is this, like, it's half magazine, half laser light show, circus extravaganza. A bunch of writers uh, write articles, which are then set to music, and it's super fun. So there's journalists and essayists and, and then weirdos like me. And I wrote an uh, essay on how few women Elvis impersonators there are. And I interviewed uh, some great uh, female Elvis impersonators, including the great drag king Elvis Herselvis from Oakland, California. (laughs) That is a great name. She has toured the planet with her band, The Straight White Males. Um, (laughs) She doesn't do it anymore. Now she's playing Captain Kirk in a a drag version of Star Trek. She's, She's amazing. But yeah, and so part of the shtick is halfway through, I turn into Elvis and, you know, all it takes is a pompadour and a gold jacket and the crowd goes wild. It's really fun. (laughs) I thought you were so convincing. Again, I haven't had a chance to see it live yet, but the photos that I've seen, I feel like you really have the moves down, Uh. like the the body, you know, contortion. Like I'd have believed that, you know, Elvis had re-entered the building. Unfortunately, I'm doing this at the same week that the Elvis movie is opening. So that trailer of that person, Austin Butler, who's had like a million dollars worth of like lessons, it's like right up against these like grainy photos of me on Instagram, almost getting it right. You know, he's like just like knocking it out of the park. Uh, For what you had to work with in terms of special effects budget, I think you're doing an amazing job. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. All right, let's welcome our first guest onto the show. He's the creator of the fictional podcast Moonface, which explores language and also love through a a multicultural experience of mother and son. The show landed on the best of 2019 lists from Vulture and Time magazine. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with James Kim, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, this new podcast of yours, Moonface, is really incredible. How did you get the idea for it? Yeah, I, um, I used to work in an uh, entertainment show uh, for public radio, and I did a lot of interviews with a lot of celebrities who are minorities. I was just ended up being that guy interviewing <laughs> those people. Uh, I wonder why. And, um, you know, with every single interview, everybody was telling me how difficult it was to get their story told. Um, and how everyone was saying, no, they can't relate to these stories. 
And here I saw podcasting, especially fiction podcasts, like an, as an outlet to tell these stories from marginalized communities and really kind of um, produce it in a way that's independent and it's cheap. You could set it on the moon, you could set it in a classroom, you could set it here in this theater and it'd be the same budget. So I kind of was really inspired by the idea that there was just really not a lot of stories about Asian Americans and I just wanted to do something for uh, the Asian American community. Um, one of the really interesting elements of the of, of Moonface is, okay, so it's the story of this guy, Paul, yeah, and he is trying to figure out how to come out to his mother, who's Korean American, um, but she doesn't speak uh, a lot of English, and he doesn't speak a lot of Korean, and that creates uh, uh, some real challenges. Yeah. Now, you are Korean American, gay man, whose mother, I understand, does not speak a lot of English, and you do not speak a lot of <laughs> Korean. Are these in any way related? <laughs> no, totally not. No. Okay. <laughs> On to uh, my next question. Yeah, exactly. No, but I, I guess here, yeah, yeah, my, yeah. my first question about this is really um, kind of practical, uh, which is how did this develop that you and your mom don't really share the same language? Yeah, when I was growing up, I, uh, I spoke Korean fluently, apparently. There's even like a home video that my parents would show me and be like, look how good you used to sound. Oh, and, like, man. Like shame me a bit, which kind of sucked. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, growing up, they really wanted me to assimilate. And so uh, they stopped taking me to Korean classes and just basically we're like, just learn English and eventually you'll, you'll learn the language back again. And that never happened. Um, and so it caused this kind of tear in our relationship where I don't really speak to my mom. You know, it's all surface level. It's about like, you know, how's your day going or does this food taste good? And then that's completely it. So yeah, it, it was something where, you know, I used to speak it well and then, um, you know, got to the point where I needed to come out to my mom and I didn't know how to do it because I didn't know the words to say I'm gay in Korean. And yeah, but in the end, I just kind of was like, I'm gay. And she kind of got exactly what I was saying. Like, I'm sure she's walked in on me watching porn and she saw what was on the screen. So, And that really is, let's yeah, be honest, the international know. language. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, everything is good now. I mean, I, I'm learning Korean and she's trying to learn English and, and we're trying to get our relationship back on track. Uh, one of the things that you did with this show though, by the way, we're talking to James Kim, this podcast is called Moonface, um, is the, the mother character speaks Korean and it's not translated. What were you hoping to accomplish with that? Yeah, I really wanted the audience and the listeners to experience exactly what the main character was feeling, um, at the time. And to do that and to not have any translation, I thought was the best way to do it. If especially putting everyone on his shoes when she's saying stuff and he's completely confused, it really makes the audience relate to that character. Um, so I, and, and two, I just, uh, I didn't want any narration either. I didn't want to over explain cause that's like a big issue in public radio. I've been in public <laughs> radio all my life and there's so much over explanation and I, I didn't want any of that. I wanted this to be subtle and ultimately I wanted it to be like an awkward, honest kind of experience. Yeah, that's one thing that I noticed when I was listening to it. My ear is so trained to listen to podcasts to have them be very wordy, right? Yeah. And it's so quiet in a way. There, there are these moments of great silence. If people are going to walk to the door, you just you don't even hear sometimes footsteps. There's just these wonderful sort of pauses, and or they go to dance, and you don't you don't really hear that much. Was that a reactive goal, just to like not just to take the narration out, but to make it as quiet? as possible? Yeah, some of my favorite um, films and media and television shows are 
when they have these long, long, long pauses. Um, it's a weird example, but it's a movie called It Follows. Mm-hmm. And it's oh, a yeah. horror movie. It's so incredible. But there's not a lot of dialogue in the movie. And they build these atmospheric, emotional moments just by using sound design. And so I kind of want to mimic that. Like, uh-huh. I, I really wanted to make a fiction podcast that was utilizing audio to the fullest. So it's crazy that you, like, caught all those silences because in when we recorded the actors, like, they were just going through the lines like crazy. So in post-production, it was just like we, we had some moments where it was like 15, 20 seconds of silence. And the sound designer I was working with, he was like, you're absolutely insane. I was like, no, 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 this is going to be brilliant. And, um, <laughs> and I'm going to, I don't know, maybe it paid off, who knows. <laughs> I was listening to a lot of this while I was driving. And I would find myself just kind of like almost lost in my own thoughts in the moments yeah. between what the characters are doing on Moonface. Yeah. It's like white space on the page or something. Yeah. Like it's just this this moment where you kind of check in with yourself as a par- participant in the storytelling. Yeah. And I've always noticed too exactly. Like I've I've noticed when I'm listening to something and uh, there's a lot of talking or there's like a lot like if like a radio lab episode, there's just like a lot of things happening. And um I wanted, like, I've noticed any time that they use silence, all of a sudden you're really paying attention. Yeah. And whatever happens before and after that silence, it's like you're you're holding on to those words, those sounds, or whatever's happening. So I just wanted to have as many of those moments where it's like there's so much silence in there that you're always constantly actively listening. This is Livewire from PRX. We are listening back to a conversation we had with James Kim about his podcast, Moonface. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be back with much more in just a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of LiveWire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at LiveWire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork Mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarella. We are celebrating Pride this week. Let's get back into our interview with James Kim, talking about his podcast, Moonface. 
one of the uh, things that is discussed uh, in the podcast is this Korean term Han. Can you kind of explain what that is and, and what role it plays in, the, in Moonface? Yeah, I discovered this term a couple years ago, and it was an article. I don't remember who wrote it, but it was titled Kimchi Rage. And I was like, whoa, that's racist. And then when I was reading it, um, I was like, oh, no, like, I totally understand this. And, and uh, you know, it was written by a Korean person, too. So I was like, all right. But um, it, it's, it's this thing where... Um, you know, South Koreans have been through a lot. They've been through Japanese colonization and they've been through, you know, what happened with the DMZ and especially what's happening now in North Korea, that they've internalized a lot of these emotions and they, they kind of believe that these emotions that they haven't let out, this anger, this depression, this sadness has been passed down through generation to generation and has caused this I don't know, like a really bubbling emotion that they can't control. And then all of a sudden it would just burst. Um, so like someone showed me like there's like a video, uh, a YouTube video of like two Korean people who were, who were in traffic and one of them gets out of their car, starts screaming. The other one gets out of the car, starts screaming and then get into a fist fight. And like that's kimchi rage. It's like when they take an ordinary s scenario that can be de-escalated just by words that, that it just escalates really quickly. And, um, and it, it all stems from this idea that, that Koreans haven't had an outlet to let all these emotions out. It's something that I feel like a lot of like second generation Koreans like me have been, we've been more open about discussing our feelings. Like my, my parents' generation, they do not talk about their feelings at all. I remember when I was a little kid, uh, my dad came up to me, something happened in my family and it must've been bad because he came to me and he was like, don't ever tell anybody about this. You always keep this drama in the family. Just keep it to yourself. And you know, now growing up with uh, boy, did you ever not do that? I, <laughs> I just laid like it all you out literally there. are broadcasting just, yeah, <laughs> every single thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, exactly. Like things like making this podcast and seeing other people, like Andrew On, he's a film director um, based in LA, and did a a, a a story about a Korean American coming out to his parents too, and seeing a lot of these Korean Americans like talking about their feelings and making art about their feelings, I feel like that's been kind of a, a counter movement to what our parents' generations has been, which is like shut down completely. Has your mom heard the podcast? No, she has not. She actually doesn't even know what I do. I even remember when I got like a new job in podcasting, she's like, I don't know what that is, but great. Yeah. So yeah, she totally, she has no idea what a podcast is and like, I'm going to keep it that way. There's so many things that uh, are super personal. I mean, you both heard it. It starts at a sex club and I would rather not have my mom listen to a character based on me having an orgasm. Kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's the right call. Yeah, right. <laughs> 100%. All right, James, I feel even though Moonface is fictionalized, uh, if, if folks listen to it, they learn a lot about you, as we've established. Uh, but we want the Livewire audience to get a better sense of kind of what makes you tick. And so to that end, uh, here on stage, we've got a physical jar on the desk. It has the five essential questions of our time in it. We call this exercise the jar of truth. Here's how this is going to work. Oh, man. Uh, James will have you pull a question at random from the Jar of Truth. Elena Passarella will read you the question, and then we'd like to get your uh, truthful answer to one of the five essential questions of our time. Man, can I just do a dare instead? <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you look great and your friend looks terrible, is it ethical to post the photo online? 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's, the, <laughs> that's on them. That's their fault. <laughs> really? Sorry. Oh, yeah, totally. If you're looking good and it's just like, I don't know, I've had that done to me before. And I just didn't care. And I'm just huh. like, you know what? I'm just going to. And then I ended up doing it to someone else. And um, they're mad about it. But I was just like, too bad. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know if that's. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm learning something here uh, from you, James. Uh, let's do another question. All right. Can you refer to multiple people as your best friend? <laughs> This sucks that I have to answer this one uh, because my my um, best friends don't know that there's multiple best friends in my circle. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> and um, yeah, I guess they do now. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, yeah I have like about four or five best friends. I have uh, probably a couple people in my life who I would, depending on the day, consider my best friend. But I don't think I've ever said to them, "You are my best friend." Really? Like. Yeah. You never told anyone that, 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 you know, they're the... I mean, not since, like, seventh grade. Oh, is this... Oh. <laughs> but I don't, I'm not, I don't think there's anything juvenile about it. I think there's something in me that it feels like that's too intense to say to one of my friends. Maybe it's too much pressure, or maybe I don't want to be locked into that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you actually yeah. tell your, yeah. like, friends, hey, you're my best friend. Yeah, I feel like I'm, like, uh, polyamorous when it comes to best friends. <laughs> you know, like, multiple best friends. Because best friend indicates it's a superlative that that's the one best friend yeah i feel like that's the same with like monogamy right it's like if you believe in monogamy then it's like that one true love and and, and i just don't so i feel like yeah I, I think it's totally okay about having multiple best friends you can make that deep connection with multiple people well james now uh we have your mom who you don't want to hear the podcast and your four to eight best friends who <laughs> you don't want to hear this radio broadcast you got a lot of secrets brother a lot yeah. of secrets yeah. james kim everybody the podcast is Moonface. That was James Kim right here on Livewire. You can check out his podcast, Moonface, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, since James was on the show, he's made another project. It's called Vermont Avenue, and it won the Tribeca Festival's inaugural Best Fiction Podcast Award. Uh, so now you have two amazing products from James to check out if you haven't already. Hey, special thanks this week to John Van Staveren of Portland, Oregon. And also, it's Tony Passarello of Sandy Springs, Georgia. Does that sound familiar, Elena? I think it's pronounced past the jello, or at least it was <laughs> when I was in gym class. <laughs> your, dad is, your dad is supporting the show this week with a donation? Woohoo! Just in time for Father's Day. <laughs> that is really that is really sweet. We are the only public radio show that has our actual parents donating to keep it going. And let's not Thanks, sleep. Dad. Let's not sleep on John either. John Van Staveren, Tony, and John are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting the show with a donation each month, which we're very thankful for because it's how we're able to keep doing the show. So a big thanks to John and Tony this week. This is Livewire. As we like to do each week, we ask the listeners a question. Uh, because we're celebrating Pride this month, we asked, what unsung or undersung hero from queer history would you like to shout out? Elena has been uh, collecting up those responses. What are you seeing? Oh, these are so great. One really touched me because this is an undersung hero who has recently departed. Okay. Irvishy Vad 
who was a, a Josephine tells us is a gender nonconforming lesbian immigrant of color who unapologetically and relentlessly spoke out on behalf of justice and equality. She didn't waste one moment of her precious life finding every possible opportunity to fight for a better life for her queer brothers and sisters and everyone else in between. So wow. very, very cool. Very cool. She's a, she was a lawyer an LGBT rights activist. She was president of a social justice group that helps organize people and helps innovate the movement. And really, I mean, and I didn't know about her until her passing, but social media was just uh, really paying tribute. Yeah, I remember seeing that. Every time I hear about somebody uh, like her, uh, you know, you mentioned this sort of, what are you going to do with this one wildlife of yours uh, concept? I think I got to do a little more with this one wildlife of mine. You get really inspired when you hear about what people are able to accomplish when they really put their minds to it. Life is for service. That's right. I've got that piece of paper. We learned this on the show recently uh, to write down a little note to yourself, tear that piece of paper up and carry it around with you and write life is for service on there. The Mr. Rogers connection, I think. All right. uh, Who is another unsung or undersung queer hero that one of our listeners wanted to highlight? We had a lot of repeats, which was great. Billie Jean King, you are loved. Nice. Just know that. <laughs> yeah, we said we said undersung. <laughs> I feel like for you know good reason. The 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 legend of Billie Jean King has been sung. Yeah, fully sung, sung like an aria. Uh, yeah. But maybe not so much this this repeated mention of Kristen Beck. Monica and other people wanted to shout out Kristen Beck. Kristen Beck is a retired United States Navy SEAL who gained public attention in 2013 when she came out as a trans woman and published a memoir called Warrior Princess, a U.S. Navy SEAL's journey to coming out transgender. And before coming out, she served 20 years as a Navy SEAL, and she is the first openly transgender person to have ever held that position. So, wow, what an impressive person. Yeah. All right, before we move on, one more undersung queer hero. Okay, so we've done politics. We've done uh, American military service. Military service. Okay, what do you got for me? We waved at Billie Jean King over in sports. How about this for music? For Billy's suggestion of Ma Rainey. Okay. Recognized as one of the big three foundational women's blues singers of the 20s and 30s, but lesser known as a queer figure. Yeah, I didn't know that. Of course, I've seen the name many times and even heard the music, but I didn't know that, um, that she was a queer person. Yes, Billy describes Ma Rainey as a gender nonconforming queer black woman who was arrested in 1925 and then afterwards recorded the song Prove It On Me, which I like, <laughs> but I didn't quite listen to all the lyrics. They're great. Listen to this. I went out last night with a crowd of my friends. They must have been women because I don't like men. It's true. I wear a collar and a tie. Talk to the gals just like any old man. Well, uh, you know, Ma Rainey not being coy with those lyrics. That's pretty- yeah. Pretty straightforward about what uh, what was going on. Uh, for I like them, a good so. blunt song. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Maybe the recordings, you know, were kind of scratchy back then, so some people were not fully picking up on it. But that's a that's a pretty direct statement there. So I'm here for it. Absolutely. Hey, thanks to everyone who wrote in with their responses to our question this week as we are celebrating Pride. You're listening to Live Wire from PRX. Our next guest is a writer whose first novel debuted on the New York Times bestseller list and was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in Fiction. Um, This book is a story of what happens to a family in Florida and their taxidermy shop after the father takes his own life 
and then they are left to pick up the pieces. Uh, it's been called Darkly Hilarious. Um, the actual title of the book, though, is Mostly Dead Things. So take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Kristen Arnett, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland back in 2019. Hi, hi, Kristen. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, okay, so just for folks who maybe haven't had a chance to, to read the book yet, can you kind of lay out the general plot of Mostly Dead Things? Yes, I will give you the elevator pitch. Um, lesbian taxidermist in Central Florida takes over the family taxidermy business after her father commits suicide. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That classic tale. Yeah, that old chestnut. <laughs> Why did you decide on taxidermy as the family biz? Um, well, you know, as, as most of us do, uh, I was spending a lot of time just messing around on the internet, looking at things I thought were funny. And what I was doing a lot of the time was I was looking at really horrible taxidermy because I found it really hilarious. So I was, like, spending way too long online looking at these, like, extremely terrible pieces of taxidermy. And as I was doing what that... What makes a piece of taxidermy... More terrible than what I think of all taxidermy as being. <laughs> um, I really think it's in the eyes. <laughs> so, like, if the, if the eyes are placed even just a little bit off, it's, like, yeah. the one I really love is there's this, like, beautiful lion. It's this lion, and it's, like, very ferocious, and it's, like, set in this, like, like backdrop. And then you look at its face, and the eyes are just, like, <laughs> Right. It's like the lion from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's, like, a lot going on with it. But I spent all this time looking at this funny taxidermy, and because I'm also a librarian, I was like, oh, I'm really interested actually in how these come together. So I did like, you know, what we all do. I went on Wikipedia and then just went down the rabbit hole looking at like the different processes and procedures. Yeah, I sound like a librarian right now. In this case, the <laughs> rabbit hole was about actual rabbits. Yes, exactly. So that was different. So it really was a thing where uh, I was looking at so much of it and it just became, I became obsessive about it, I think. I was just obsessive about looking at like what it, took to do it. And then the more I thought about taxidermy, then it was like, actually, everything's taxidermy. I'm like, memories taxidermy, intimacies taxidermy. And what do you mean by that? I've heard okay. you say that in an interview. Can you yeah. explain that? Like you talk about taxidermy being like a family. Yes. Uh, well, the idea of like memory being constructed, right? Uh, a memory is like, it's a quote, but it's like a memory is only the memory of the last time you thought of the memory or told it to somebody else. So the idea that memory is constructed or posed or structured in the way that we put it together in our own head it feels like taxidermy to me because it's a lot of those same kind of things, right? The preservation of something, the posing, the curation is memory. You sort of reconstruct it to make it appear lifelike, yes. and that's like a yeah. messed up deer on the wall. Yes, with exactly. Going crazy. <laughs> my memory feels like that sometimes. Yeah, a lot of my memories feel like they have crossed eyes. So. <laughs> what, let's talk about your childhood a little bit in Florida. What was the kind of literary vibe in your home? Were your parents readers? Oh. What was your relationship with, with books and reading and stuff like that? My family is extremely evangelical, Southern Baptist, very conservative. So I grew up in a very specific kind of household that reading wasn't necessarily encouraged or like certain kinds of reading wasn't. Sure. So I spent a lot of time, because I was a voracious reader and wanted to read, so I spent a lot of time secreting books away, um, books that, like, I read a ton of Stephen King. I was obsessed with Stephen King, and I would want to read them. So, And I also wasn't allowed to ever close my bedroom door. <laughs> so I was, like, sitting on the floor in my bedroom, like, holding the book in my lap and, like, listening for somebody coming down the hallway and then chuck it yeah. underneath the dresser. Were your parents afraid you were going to grow up to be gay? <laughs> 
I think so. That, I mean, that's actually, we're talking to Kristen Arnett. Her new book is Mostly Dead Things. When I read interviews with you, the first thing that's in almost every bio of you is that you're a queer writer. Yes. And that doesn't seem like it's an accident. I think that, why is it important to you to make sure that that's something that people know about you and yourself as a writer? Um, because I, I mean, I am a queer writer. And I, a thing that I was thinking a lot about, I, very, I was very purposeful in putting that in all of my bios and everything I do because, I mean, the things I am interested in writing about, like I like to write about Florida, I'm interested in families and these kind of like really kind of messed up or hard relationships because I think all families have that stuff. But another thing I'm interested in too is writing like life from a queer perspective. And a thing that I think is really important is, um, especially when things started happening for myself and for this book, is that when you have success, you hold the door open mm -hmm. so that other people can come in too. Because ideally, what would be great is if there'd be like a million more kinds of queer books. Mm -hmm. So putting queer in my thing and having something be successful means hopefully like that enables more queer books, more of these different kinds of experiences and myriad, myriad types. But the irony is that, like, one of the main characters in the book is named Jessa, mm -hmm. and she's queer, but it's not, like, a whole thing. Yes. It sounds like for yourself as a person in the world, you want it to be known that you are a queer writer, yes. but for your characters, or at least this character, yes. you, that you don't want to be too obsessed with it. Yeah, well, uh, also a thing in writing this book, and also the kind of things I want to read, because, I mean, I'm a writer, but also I'm a reader. The things I want to read are, I didn't want to write or read another coming out story. Huh. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with coming out stories, but I have questions maybe about them. First of all, a coming out story is, I mean, we come out over and over again, so it's not a single experience, but a coming out story is, a, especially a first coming out, is a moment, right? A moment in time, and it's also usually a trauma. I would say it's usually a trauma. Even when things go well, it's like a traumatic experience to be like, gird yourself up and come out. So sometimes I wonder who the coming out narrative is being written for. I don't necessarily think it's always for queer people. I think it's for a straight audience because mm. it's like the idea of trauma porn. Uh, so I like to think about that or consider it. And also the kind of books that I want to read as a reader, I was like, I want to read something where it's just a lived experience and someone happens to be gay. Like I was like, I want to see the daily lived experience of a, a person who's gay. Like I have problems with my family and I happen to be queer. I, my business is going under and I'm a gay lady. I have intimacy issues. I mean, not me. Not me personally. I don't have intimacy issues at all. <laughs> and I happen to be gay. So like those are the things I was like, I want to explore this, but like the story itself is like, right? Like this is a family that has a lot of things going on. And also like how we cope with grief and loss and like the different trajectories those take with different people in a family. Was there a character in the book that you uh, kind of identified with? Was it, is it the Jessa character? Is that too obvious? Um, actually, for me, uh, the character I most identify with in the book is place, is Florida. Mm -hmm. um, how I wrote in this book was like the most me that's in Mostly Dead Things is Florida, is setting. Because I wanted to write about Florida because I'm from Florida. I love Florida. I've lived there my whole life. Writing from a perspective of like almost a sensory experience. So it's like, what does it smell like? What do you hear? Like, what does the air feel like against your skin? Those are like my my personal kind of movements through the world there. So like the most Christian character, I guess, is uh, Orlando. 
<laughs> Are you the embodiment of Orlando? Wow, I want to say that. Right Put it now. on my grave. Yeah. 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 Do you ever get tired of talking about Florida or in some way I, I, defending Florida? I mean, it's so associated. Other than Carl Hyacin, right. I don't think I can think of a writer who's more associated with Florida than you. Yeah, I, I keep saying, too, it's like I'll stop talking about Florida or writing about Florida when it's not interesting. But it's always interesting. There's always something happening. Sometimes it's something super weird. Uh, and, and sometimes it's just something beautiful for me. So I don't. I keep waiting for it to happen because I am a person that get like bored with things really easily. Um, but it, it's, it's like the one thing that feels really lodged hmm. inside of me. I love I'm like tapping my own. It's in here. Yes. It's in my heart. Sure. Uh, but it is, it is something that I, I feel obsessive over and continue to feel obsessive over. It's also Florida is so wide and there's so many different parts of it and so many interesting voices that are in there. There's been actually like a lot of really amazing literature just recently that's come out. Um, yeah, that, Lauren and Groff's for, book, we've had her on the program. Yeah, Lauren Groff. Uh, Tikira Madden wrote yeah. a beautiful memoir that was about Boca and also queer and biracial, like really amazing. Uh, Jakira Diaz just had a memoir uh, come out about Miami and that book was insanely good yeah very very yeah. good so it's all these different kinds of stories about florida because like you know i'm talking about florida but i'm also talking very very specific kind of personal localized kind of florida and florida is so broad and there's so many stories there are you comfortable with your greatest legacy being a picture of a lizard from a 7-eleven <laughs> that you took that became quite a thing on the internet that was, um, it was one of, it was a thing too that really prompted me into thinking more about writing about Florida because it was, it was this stupid, dumb tweet. Uh, so I was right, I wrote this thing because I was, I'm always in my 7-Eleven. I call it like my neighborhood bar. <laughs> I think they would prefer I did not. Yeah, no. I do. The police have asked you to please They're stop like, please treating stop. it like your neighborhood bar. Please stop. So I was in there one morning before I was going to work. It was really early and I was going to get coffee and there, yeah, there was like a lizard next to the coffee maker. I just called over my cashier. I'm like, yeah, there's a lizard over here. And like just jokingly, he was like, that's just Marvin. He likes the way the coffee smells. And this tweet went crazy viral. Like it went like, it had like something like half a million likes on it. People were like, I die for the lizard Marvin. And I was like, please don't. <laughs> we <laughs> and, stand Marvin. Yeah. People made art, like art. I mean, it was very adorable. But that, and the best thing out of it was 7-Eleven followed me back on Twitter. <laughs> Wait, but wasn't there also a component of it where 7-Eleven was trying to figure out which 7-Eleven it yeah, was? And they you were like, like oh, I'm not going to narc. Mean? I was like, I'm not going to narc on my buddy. Because that lizard probably is not 100% food safety compliant probably being next not. to the coffee. Although, so like... The thing about that tweet for me that was not weird and just felt like a regular experience is if you're in Florida, there's lizards everywhere. There's like five lizards in my house right now, I'm sure. <laughs> like if the cat hasn't murdered them. <laughs> All right, Kristen, uh, as we have just established, you are a big fan of 7-Eleven. I am, You've yes. described yourself as a 7-Eleven scholar. <laughs> but we wanted to see how deep your knowledge actually runs with a segment that we call Let's Get Quizzical. Let's get quizzical. God. Yeah. Livewire House Band. All right. Here is the plan. We have assembled 11 true or false questions about 7-Eleven. Wow. Kristen, if you get seven of them right, you truly are a 7-Eleven scholar. I'm so nervous. We also have an actual Slurpee here oh. that was purchased just oh down the God. street. It appears to be some unnatural <laughs> blue 
color. That's called a fruit flavor. Oh, okay. So if, Kristen, you get seven out of these 11, you're a 7-Eleven scholar and you will get the Slurpee. So you ready? This is the hardest test of my life. Yeah. True or false, Slurpees are kosher. True. You're absolutely right. Yes. Kind of. Yes, they're mostly kosher. Diet Pepsi and Jolly Rancher flavored Slurpees are technically not kosher. What? Mm. Wow. Some 7-Elevens get their machines certified kosher, by the way. <gasps> you love to hear it. You, you love to hear it. You just do. All right. 25% of Americans live within a mile of a 7-Eleven. Is that true or false? I want it to be true. True? You're absolutely right. It is yes! true. How's she doing, Elena? Two. Okay. That would mean five more before you're truly a 7-Eleven scholar. True or false, Kristen Arnett, out of respect for the holiday, 7-Elevens are only closed on one day, and that is Christmas. False. You're absolutely right. That is false. I went there on Christmas this year. (laughs) You are not alone. Not only are 7-Elevens open on Christmas, it's their biggest sales day of the year. Wow. (laughs) Which totally makes sense. Like, I know that no matter where I am, what hour of the night or what holiday it is, I'm like, I bet the 7-Eleven's open. 7-Eleven is there for you. That's right. True or false, you can pay your taxes at 7-Eleven. False? I'm sorry, that is true. The IRS allows people to turn in cash to pay taxes at participating 7-Elevens. Oh, my God. What can't they do? (laughs) It was an audible gasp from the audience. (laughs) Okay, Elena, how are we doing? We're holding steady at three. Three correct, one wrong, four questions in, seven left. Here we go. True or false, the Slurpee capital of the world is in Florida. Mm. I want it to be true. True? Oh, false. It's Winnipeg, Canada. What? Where for 19 years in a row, they have had the Slurpee Championship. It's so cold. (laughs) You would think Winnipeg, Canada would be the last place they would need a Slurpee. Okay. Uh, We've sort of hit a little bit of a rough spot here. I know. I'm sweating a little in my turtleneck. All right. Here we go. The best-selling worldwide Slurpee flavor is Coca-Cola. True or false? True. Is it false? false? Oh. Okay. Fanta Cherry no. is the best-seller oh, okay. worldwide. The, the Slurpee I get is a half and half Coke and cherry. You mm. mix it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Agreed. Mm. You alternate, and then you have a cherry Coke. So. Yeah. Mm. Well, that sounds delicious. It actually sounds much better than Fanta Cherry to me. But according to our research, and it was rigorous, Fanta <laughs> Cherry is the best-seller worldwide. I'm about worldwide. to lose the Slurpee. I'm going to cry. Elena, how are we doing on the scoring? Kristen can only get one more wrong. That is... We are in trouble. Uh, No, we got this. We got this. Here we go. 7-Eleven once sold a product called the Cheeseburger Bite. True or false? True. 100% true. I hate that. (laughs) I have eaten many a cheeseburger bite after a late night out because it's like the last thing on the roller. It's the thing nobody wanted during the day. (laughs) True or false? 7-Eleven's parent company is based in Tokyo. True. True. Yes, absolutely right. It's true. (laughs) It's called Seven and I Holdings Limited. 
based in Japan. That's fancy. I assume that it's just like a mega corporation that at some point uh, absorbed them. But like, you know, do you didn't notice the changeover when they were purchased by that company? Not in my particular 7-Eleven. That's good. No. That's, uh, they're doing a good job then. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Two more. 7-Eleven was not the original name of the store. True or false? True. True is absolutely right. <laughs> in 1946, the name changed when they expanded their hours from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. Before that, it was called Totem Stores, as in like tote something around. Well, I don't like that. No, yeah, me I don't neither. care for it. No. Yeah. Last one. Ooh. The largest member of the Big Gulp family is the Extreme Gulp. True or false? Mm, false. Yes, you're absolutely right. The largest option is the Team Gulp, which is 128 ounces. It's a small child. Yes. <laughs> Gather the team around. Yeah, that's a gallon of soda. That, you knew that off the top of your head? Yeah. You're absolutely right, Passarello. You also get a point. Yay! Share the Slurpee, you two. Yay! Kristen Arnett, the book is Mostly Dead Things. Thanks for coming on Livewire. That was Kristen Arnett talking about her novel, Mostly Dead Things, in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater back in 2019. Now, since we talked to Kristen, she's released a second novel called With Teeth. She was also a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in fiction for that one as well. Uh, And Kristen is a really great follow on Twitter, if that's your thing. And it is my thing. That's why I'm telling you that, because I follow her on Twitter. This is Livewire from PRX. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey use the code livewire all lowercase for 20% off at portaltea.co Welcome back to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We are celebrating Pride on the show this week. And our next guests are, as far as we could figure out, quite possibly the first openly gay country band in America. They formed back in 1972, uh, and the reception at the time was maybe a bit chilly, it being 1972. Thankfully, things are a lot different these days. And the band is still around, and now they're getting all this acclaim that they've deserved for years. Rolling Stone and Pitchfork have shouted them out. In fact, they are now releasing their very first new music since they formed like 40-plus years ago. So take a listen to this. It's Lavender Country featuring frontman Patrick Haggerty recorded live at Fremont Abbey in Seattle back in 2019. So what was the reception like for Lavender Country when, when you started this up? Well, I'm not, I'm not only gay and country, but I'm a radical socialist. Um, that's who I am. Right, but I mean, were people, and like, did you go behind enemy lines with the band? Did you guys go try to play, like, somewhere that wasn't Capitol Hill in Seattle? Oh, no. No, there's nobody would even dream of having us. Really? Oh, no. Not with the songs I was writing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I had to make a choice. 
1970 and 71 about whether I was going to go be a country music singer or whether I was going to be a radical Marxist screaming fill in the blank. I had to make that choice. And I did not have the uh, option of doing both. And I decided that I was going to be a, a radical activist and that I was going to forego a career in country music singing. Did you regret that decision at some point? Never. Never, because look at me now, right? <laughs> yeah. Never. No, I never, I never looked back on that decision because I knew it was the right decision for me. And also, the beauty of Lavender Country was that we knew that it was hopeless commercially, right? It was idiocy. Do you think you could get anywhere in 1973 singing Marxist gay country, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that was not going to pan. <laughs> but what? somebody put one of my songs that's a political protest song with an unmentionable title on YouTube, and I didn't know that. Somebody else heard it who was a music aficionado in Chicago, a straight man. And he took it to a straight label in North Carolina, of all places, right? Uh. They, were, they bit on Lavender Country, hook, line, and sinker. Both the guys who ran this label. What's the name of the label? The name of the label sounds gay, but they're not. The name of... <laughs> The name of the label is Paradise of Bachelors. <laughs> but it's a quote from a Herman Melville novel. And we have, um, after 46 years, we have a new album. <laughs> and uh, the name of the album is Blackberry Rose and Other Songs and Sorrows. This song is about trying to figure out the difference between red-hot sex and real human intimacy. Anybody ever had trouble with that topic? <laughs> uh, well, it was a bombshell topic for gay men in the 1970s, let me tell you that. It's called, I Can't Shake the Stranger Out of You. No album. Dancing with your tight blue jeans on, prancing like a palomino on the run. I reckon you're looking for some necking. Yes, I do. Climb right on up into my manger, but let me warn you about one's called Angel Bay. I can't shake the stranger out of you. Prancing and preening as smooth as you can. You're hotter than the popcorn dancing in Japan. Out to capture 
You're hot to trot for the next backaroo. Who's got the stuff to put a saddle on you and ride you higher on the fires of desire than you ever knew? All our favorite fantasies have come to an end. We'll be waking up tomorrow needing a friend. Cause I can't shake the stranger out of you. Oh, I can't shake the stranger out of you. No, oh, I can't shake the stranger out of you. Yeah. A, a, sweet, a sweet song with a message. That is Lavender Country, Lavender Country. right here on Livewire. Yeah. So they released their first album in 1973, and um, they just released their second album, Blackberry Rose, back in February. So that's a pretty big... Wow! <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a pretty big piece of time in between albums, but this new album, Blackberry Rose, is getting lots of love. Rolling Stone calls it a mix of classic honky-tonk sounds with the lo-fi aesthetic of K Records, uh, or even the country-leaning work of the magnetic fields. Mm. Everything in that review is something I like listening to. So definitely <laughs> going to go check out Blackberry Rose. That's Lavender Country here on Livewire. And that is going to do it for this special episode of the show, our Pride episode. A huge thanks to our guests, James Kim, Kristen Arnett, and 
lavender country. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our development and marketing director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. And Viviana Castillo-Serrano is our intern. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members John Van Staveren of Portland, Oregon, and Tony Passarello of Sandy Springs, (laughs) Georgia. God, that is a familiar name. Where do I hear that? I hear that guy has great taste in daughters. (laughs) For more information about our show or how to listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.